Some of the most mind-bending and problematic portions of Scripture happen to be the words of Jesus. Uh, often we think they're simplified and they're, and they're really easy, but then you start reading them. And they're not so easy. They're not so simple. I mean, for, off, for years Christians have offered opposing views, attempting to explain or present some insight into what appears to be some chaotic, nonsensical verbiage. For instance, when Jesus says, unless you pluck out your eye, you cannot enter heaven. That seems really simple, right? Or, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. Or, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Pretty difficult sayings. And Jesus seems to often be contradicting himself as well. All sorts of attempts have, have, uh, have been given to explain what Jesus is attempting to communicate to his listeners. And from time to time, Christ uh, still can come across, as, as even Byron pointed out this morning, you think the plural of Greek price in, one, in, in your mind means one thing, but really it means something else. And this is, uh, unfortunately, there's, there's a reason for, I think, the confusion. And actually, John chapter 2 is going to bring some conclusions for us, or some, some, I, I think some clarifying uh, points for us this morning. And the two messages that Jesus is constantly giving are actually polarizing. They're opposites. And we know them as law and gospel. Two separate messages. And these two messages could be so opposing to each other, yet we seem to, they should be, we should obviously see them as opposing each other, but we often see them blended together, mixed. So what I want to do tonight is explain what is law, explain what is gospel, see how Jesus uses them here in John chapter 2 and following, and then possibly see how we are mixing and blending them. So what is the law? The law places the requirement of perfect obedience to God. The law never gives, it only takes. It has nothing to offer. It cares not for your frailty, your weakness, or humanity. It simply requires perfection. That's the law. The gospel. The gospel sees our human state, all that we have done against God. It is fully exposed to our imperfection, declares with eternal hope, Grace. The gospel gives life and requires nothing of its recipients. It doesn't take, it gives. Faith alone is its declaration. We are declared righteous by faith alone. So the difference between the law and the gospel. When you don't keep clear boundaries between the two messages, hope turns into chaos and despair. So when Jesus is faced with this question, once he gets a lot in his ministry, and we're going to see it here in the book of John a lot as well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What answer does Jesus give? And typically when someone asks, when I ask someone that question, the answer is, well, Jesus gives the gospel. But that's not necessarily true. When Jesus is faced with the question, what must I do? It depends on the situation and it depends on the person. Actually, Jesus has two responses. To some, he gives law, and to others, he gives gospel. And there's a reason why to some he gives law, and to others, he gives gospel. And so we're going to look at that tonight. To the one he gives law to, it's to the self-righteous. For instance, the rich young ruler walks up to him and says, what must I do to be saved? And he gives him law, go sell everything, give it to the poor, 
then you can inherit eternal life. Is that the gospel? Is that good news? No, that's a requirement. That's a requirement. That would mean you could earn it. But to the self-proclaimed sinners, God gives grace. He gives gospel. An example of how we mix law and gospel is taking the answer of Jesus and making the two of them into one. For instance, how must you be saved? Sell everything you own and follow Jesus. It's a life full of dedication to Christ. Repent of your sins and then Jesus will save you. And then all we need to tag on that is and believe. And believe. And this is what it ends up sounding like all meshed together. Repent of your sins, make him Lord and believe in him by faith and he will save you. That's as a, a good friend of ours says, gospel. That's not the gospel. You have just mixed the gospel with the law. Everything that is required in the gospel is met by Jesus. There is nothing left as the definition that we gave earlier. Even your faith and repentance. So the very thing that Jesus requires in the gospel, repent and believe. That alone is still given to you by the power of the Spirit through regeneration, which we'll talk about that a little bit later. So why am I pointing this all out? What does this have to do with, chapter, with John chapter 2? Well, for the next four chapters, this is a, a John is going to be narrating this very issue, the distinction between the law and the gospel, and how the two of them have been mixed together, and Jesus in his nature is coming to expose them. So law-abiding Jews are rejecting the message of Christ. And they are, and Jesus in return is showing them law, but to the sinners he is showing the gospel. So we're going to go ahead and begin reading in John chapter 22 and the next following verses. He says, uh, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So the setting from John here is that the crowd has been observing Jesus perform these miracles and have come to let him know that they now believe in Jesus. We believe in you. We believe in your name. What represents you is another. Is, uh, when you say, I believe in the name of Jesus, I, rep- I believe in what you represent, Jesus. So Jesus hears their confession, and John says that the response of Jesus is that he did not entrust himself to them, meaning he did not accept them to be part of his sheep. Meaning to entrust was he did not believe He could be exposed or he could allow himself to be around them as disciples. We'll learn uh, about that a little bit more. He rejected their confession. So they come yelling to Jesus, we believe in you. He hears their confession and John tells us that he rejects their confession. Not because they were not sincere. It doesn't say that. It's not because they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. Very clear. They saw him performing the miracles. Jesus rejects them, according to John, because Jesus saw their heart, which is interesting. There's been a heavy emphasis lay on the future judgment of the believer. So all of the so you become you you are saved, 
and then from the moment you were saved to the final judgment, all of these actions are going to be tallied up and observed by the judge, observed by God at the end. This has been very popular teaching uh, by a lot of evangelical, famous evangelical teachers. And what God's going to do is going to look and observe your obedience. And as he observes your obedience, he will then determine if you are truly saved or not. So it's not confession in faith. It's not sola fide. It's not faith alone. There is a requirement. And the requirement is I must observe your faith. Well, unfortunately, John tells us that Jesus doesn't need to observe your actions to know what's in your heart. The very phrase Jesus says is that and needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew man. Uh, John, or just to read you a couple of verses, 1 Kings 8.39, towards the end of it, he's trying to deal with Israel. He says, for one, for you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. And then in Jeremiah 17.10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So he's exposing He's not looking at, he's not observing his deeds. See the, see the flow there? Starts from the mind and moves out to punishment. He doesn't observe actions and move into punishment. So there's a difference. And, and th- these two, I, I'll be frank with you, these two little verses in John I've never paid attention to because they're not very popular and they can be a little confusing. And some of the explanations I got from them are very confusing. But these two verses really explain the next four chapters of what John is trying to do with Jesus. These people are coming and confessing that they believe in Jesus. They've seen his works. Yes, we're your believers. And Jesus says, no, I reject you. I don't trust you. I don't want to make you my disciples. It's evident from the text that they saw his power. But what is it they were putting their faith in? And Jesus points out basically that their faith is what we call a wonderment faith. They wondered. They were were infatuated with with what Jesus could do as a miracle worker, but not as the Messiah. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 7 real quick. John 7. Jesus, we often don't think about Jesus this way. What I love about John, uh, John the Apostle, is he points out to the humanity of Jesus often. This is one of those sections. So he's, Jesus is dealing with his own brothers. And again, this would be a good example of men and men observing Jesus' ability, believing in Jesus' ability, but not seeing him as Messiah. Not seeing him as So look at verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. (laughs) Make yourself known. Let everybody know how great this is. Let your disciples see what you can do. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus pointed out earlier in John chapter 5 that his brothers fall into the same attitude as those who only want to be part of Jesus for the human glory that it would bring. You can read that later, John 5, 44. The gospel incarnate was standing before these people and they were not able to trust him 
as Savior. And this happens throughout Jesus' ministry. He feeds the 5,000, crosses the water. We're going to learn about this later. And they all come and he says, your only reason you're here is because I have fed you. You don't even know who I am or why I'm here. So these three little verses set up for us the next stories from John. And John has exposed to us the deity of Christ that he could read. So he's just saying Jesus is God because he has the ability to read the hearts of man. So now we transition. So you have Jesus cleansing of the temple, coming in and turning the entire religious system upside down, saying you have missed the point of the gospel. The Gentiles are supposed to be being reconciled to me here, and they're not. And then there's this little section where these people observed. We don't know how many miracles Jesus did, but he definitely did enough to get some attention. All these people come running after him saying, we believe in you. And Jesus looks at him and goes, you are not people that I trust. You are not my disciples. And John begins to explain why. And he starts his explanation in John 3 with the story of Nicodemus. So we're going to actually, we're actually not going to spend a lot of time with Nicodemus. We're going to look at several stories that John points to over the next four chapters. And then starting in a couple of weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time in the detail of Nicodemus. So this is what I would say the 30,000 foot view over the next few chapters, and then we'll go down into it. But let's quickly look, read uh, chapter 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Sounds very similar to the other people. Observing God doing miracles? Now we clearly see you are from God. So what does he say? Jesus answered him. Jesus, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the details, but he never really asked a question. <laughs> Jesus beat him to the punchline because he knew it was coming next. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Jesus is peering into the soul of this religious leader, sees that he is not trusting Jesus. He's not trusting him as Messiah or as Savior and replies with a very strange riddle for him. Nowhere in scripture up to this point has this image been given. So for the first time, Jesus is introducing us to the concept of rebirth. Of course, Nicodemus has no idea, just like eating of my flesh, plucking out my eye, being born over, that doesn't make any sense. So Nicodemus is expecting Jesus. He's a man who's not only is he well-trained, but he's a leader of the Jews. So this man is expecting Jesus, if he's from God, to be consistent with God in his mind and say, you must obey the law. Jesus peers into the heart of this man, knows the heart of the man, knows that the man is there presenting himself as righteous and takes the religion of this man, all of his obedience, and tosses it aside and gives the man an impossible task. You want to, be, you want to go to heaven? Be reborn. It's impossible. So Nicodemus is right to be confused. He has never heard this before. 
being raised in the Mosaic Law, nowhere in the Mosaic Law is he talking about going back into your mother's womb. He doesn't even understand the imagery of what's going on. The doctrine of what we call regeneration. We'll get into that next time. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is pointing out the impossibility of the Gospel. The next four chapters, all Jesus does is constantly, when He finds the religious leaders and those who are presenting self-righteousness, He gives them the impossibility either of the law or the impossibility of the gospel. He never gives them a, a probable uh, a way of, to accomplish this. So he, and He doesn't lighten up. I mean, He keeps going. We're, gonna go, we're not going to go through the rest of John 3. But He doesn't lighten up with the story. He goes into how it's the Spirit's power. And however the Spirit wants to blow, meaning uh, like the wind blows wherever it wants, the Spirit can go wherever He wants. And no one controls the Spirit. And so Nicodemus is hearing all of this language he doesn't understand, which is fascinating. Why, why is Jesus doing that? Why is He being so unclear? Well, the next example, if you jump over to John 4, He changes. He's not so unclear anymore. He goes pinpointed right at the Samaritan woman. Now, he's at the water. He sends, the, he sends his disciples into the city. He's sitting at this well, very famous well, Jacob's well. And a woman comes out. She's a Samaritan. And Jews are not supposed to, one, talk to the Samaritan women. But he does, which blows her mind. She asks, why are you doing this? And so they have this dialogue. At the end of the dialogue, all of a sudden she gets it. She understands what's going on. She understands who he is. So read verse 39. So before then. So she runs back into town saying, you're not going to believe who I found. She begins to proclaim she has found the Messiah. Very different from John chapter 2, the healer, Nicodemus, rabbi, Samaritan woman who has five different mistresses, Clearly not living up to the law. Clearly not a Jew. And she comes back and understands it's the Messiah. Read verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. To stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, here's the key, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not a messenger from God, not a rabbi. They understood who He was. Jesus exposed Himself to the very people He truly believed, understood the message. How did they come to that conclusion? What's the difference between Nicodemus and the Samaritans? One accepted Jesus as teacher, the other as Savior. How did that happen? Where did that conclusion come to? And why is it that Jesus, well, we'll save that narrative for later. I'm not, I'm not shooting all my bullets today. I've got to have something to preach down the road. Why is it that Jesus gives the gospel to the Samaritan woman, but keeps it away from the rich young ruler? Why is it he hides it from, Nic from Nicodemus? but exposes it clearly, as we can see, to the town of those who are in Samaria. We'll turn with me to John chapter 6. Remember, 30,000 foot view. John 6, and at the end of the chapter in verse 60, Jesus has this long, long dialogue with these Pharisees, with these uh, legalists. 
And he uses a lot of interesting language. Uh, this is where Jesus tells them, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And they immediately turned to each other and said, is he teaching cannibalism? Which is strange. So what does Jesus say to them at the very, very end of it? At the end of this section that John is giving us where there's a law-gospel distinction, he is defining the difference between those who understand the law and those who understand grace and the gospel. And at the very end of it, this is what he says in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Like, Jesus, you're kind of being difficult. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, up to heaven? Is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is not... Sorry, back up. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Pause. The flesh goes after the law. The law and the flesh go together. The only way in which you obey the law is with your flesh. Think about what Jesus just said. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one come, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He has got a great plan for evangelism, let me tell you. The flesh is no help at all. So the law speaks out to the flesh and calls it to live perfectly in order to receive life. That's what the law says. Do this and live. This is what was told Adam in the garden. Adam, don't eat of this tree. And if you don't eat of this tree, you will live. If you do eat of the tree, you will die. And that law has been passed down to us through Moses, what they call republication of the law. He redid it for us. And what Jesus is saying is, every time someone comes to me with the law and accomplishing it with their flesh, he says, you can't do that. And so they're coming to him not as Messiah. They're coming to him not as Savior. They're coming to him as a teacher of the law. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you gospel because you're not coming to me for the gospel. So what brings life? The words that I have spoken to you. And what are those words? They're the gospel. Who can believe in the gospel? Those whom, this is where it gets interesting, by the power of the Spirit draws them. So from John chapter 2 through John 6, you see John is bring, uh, brings life to the law-gospel distinction. He defines the two separately. So if you go back to John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25 for a moment, Jesus is very explicit on what he considers to be saving faith. It is not simply accepting his power or that he was sent by God. 
Many evangelicals, many in the South, many in Nashville, if they were to see, if you were to ask them, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? They probably would give the same answer that the followers of Jesus were giving. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus' name. Sure. And clearly they were following him as his disciples because they eventually turned away in John 6. So there was this large crowd following Jesus. So you could even say, wow, not only have they professed with their mouth, but they're showing obedience. They're showing sacrifice. They're demonstrating that they are radical followers of Jesus. Because seriously, Jesus didn't live anywhere. So they're following around nowhere. And eventually they're like, hey, we're kind of tired of following you. Can you feed us now? John chapter 5. All right, I'll feed you. And after he feeds them in John 6, he says, you, don't, you still don't understand. You still don't get it. It's a work of the Spirit that comes by the preaching of the gospel. John 20, or I'm sorry, my, uh, Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says this, which is an interesting statement. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, those to whom God has chosen. And he's warning the disciples of this before he leaves. Beware. It's easy to be confused between what is the gospel and what is the law. What is, I mean, Paul fights this entire ministry, writes an entire book on it in the book of Galatians. Our natural bent is to be led back into the law. So Jesus, in his entire ministry, specifically in these next four chapters that we're going to read, all he is doing is exposing the false believers of those who are embracing a law gospel. A gospel. Now, there are some of you that may have a study Bible, and if you look down in that section of your study Bible of chapters 23 through 25, the explanation is Jesus rejected them because they hadn't fully dedicated themselves as disciples of Jesus. Here's the problem with that. They actually did. But nowhere in Scripture does the gospel equate dedication with salvation. It's reversed. You can't take that conclusion. Because Nicodemus, who was committed, was rejected. The woman had five mistresses, was accepted. So that breaks down. Not only that, Jesus finally gets to the end of this long narrative. And there's other stories in there. We're going to save those for later. It's the end of this long narrative. And all these disciples that are following him, he says, you all don't get it. You don't accept me as the Messiah. And all these sayings I'm saying, you don't understand them for one reason. The Father has not given you belief. Now, it's interesting what Peter says. Because he turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Jesus, Peter goes, well, why would we do that? You're the one that has life. I think it's very interesting that John puts that in there. Because those who ended up following him stayed true to Jesus. Uh, turn over to John 15 real quick. Jesus actually does eventually expose himself, open himself up to his disciples. John 15, 15, he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends, for all that I have 
heard from my father, I have made known to you. He drew them in. He gave them. He gave them to them. Gave himself and exposed himself to them. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give it to you. Really important there. There is fruit. There is obedience. There is repentance. There is resistance of sin. Where did it come? Before or after? It came after. I've been teaching the Old Testament to the college students. The book of Deuteronomy is fascinating. The, the, so the law in Deuteronomy is like, so there's like 30, uh, I forget, it's like 31 chapters. The law is like 27 of them. But it's bookend. The beginning of Deuteronomy, it's all about how God redeemed them out of Egypt. He reminds them, this is what I did for you. Now what's interesting is they're already out of Egypt. They're already in this protection. And then he says, okay, this is how you're going to function with me. And then at the end of the book, he reminds them of the grace to come. Oh, by the way, this is what else I'm going to do for you. He did not say in Egypt, if you do this, then I'll bring you out. He brought them out and then said, oh, by the way, here is the way in which I want you to function with me. He is doing the same exact thing here. He is demonstrating you do not pull yourself to God. You do not adjust yourself to God. You cannot come up to him and say, look at my righteousness. Which is fascinating is Nicodemus comes, presents himself, and Jesus totally confuses him and sends him away, an unbeliever. Later on, we learn that Nicodemus actually ends up becoming saved. The woman at the well is not looking for Jesus. She's getting water. And she tries to present herself as righteous, and Jesus is like, nah, I caught you. You have five husbands, not one. And she ends up becoming saved. Why? Because Jesus is constantly exposing that the gospel is by grace alone. It has to be by grace alone, so that no one may boast. They will not... No, so, one other just side note. So, John 15, Jesus is, is basically showing the most intimate... Uh, this is one of the most intimate uh, expressions Jesus gives to the disciples or any human being at this point in time. And he's just about ready to go into the next couple of chapters and they all abandon him. So just stop and think about that. If Jesus knows all things, knows the beginning from the end, knew he was going to die, no, we know this because in John 1, he begins to express this understanding. He comes to the disciples, claims them as his own, Gives them this wonderful affection of not only am I calling you guys my servants, but you are my friend. You are the closest you could possibly be to me. And he knows it's about ready to happen. They're about ready to abandon it. So just think about that for a moment. If God is placing the entire future on 12, 11 men, 12 men that are going to abandon him, there's no way the gospel has to be perfect obedience and discipleship and radical commitment because those men failed miserably. As a matter of fact, Peter failed multiple times. Paul had to come and punch him in the nose saying, stop preaching the law. Twice. Why do I mention that? 
in Jesus's ministry, and then eventually you see it in Paul's ministry and throughout the rest of the New Testament, New Testament, they are constantly trying to separate the law and the gospel and keep them at bay from each other. Because what happens when you don't keep them at bay is it removes the proper motivation for holiness, the proper motivation to truly enjoy God, the proper motivation to bring God glory, and it also removes assurance. The fact that a pastor can get up and say, you better make sure you're obeying because God's going to examine your life at the end and determine if you're a believer or not. And I'm going, if he chose us before the foundation of the world, how is it that he's going to second guess whether he made the right choice? Oh yeah, did I choose you? I can't remember. Let's open up the book and look at your works. That does not logically work. That's law. That's not gospel. The gospel is God does every part of the saving. Every part of it from beginning to end. That's Jesus' message. That's why he uses this weird random. He, and, and, and Byron pointed this out this morning. If you don't understand who Jesus is, it's like walking around colorblind. It's like walking around blind, which I am right now. I can't see any of your faces. Jesus must open your eyes. So when the unbeliever sees Jesus say, well, you must be born again, they're going, what? Jesus brings us to life. He regenerates us. He rebirths us. And all of a sudden we're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that makes sense. The gospel informs me what happened. But unfortunately what happens, even to the believer, not only the unbeliever, but even to the believer, we allow the law to seep back in and it causes confusion. Jesus meets every requirement. So think about everything that the, the, the gospel requires. Jesus meets every single one of those. Payment for sin, righteous obedience. He takes us from death to life, regeneration. He gives us the gift of faith so we believe the gospel. Because what does is, what is, uh, the gospel say? Repent and believe and you will be forgiven of your sins. Well, in order to repent and in order to believe, the Spirit has to come and enable you to do that. That too, according to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, is a gift of God. In closing, here's just a, a way to think about this. This is what you would, this is mixing of law and gospel. This is what it says I will love you unconditionally. That's the gospel. I will love you unconditionally as long as you obey me. You just mixed it. Would you ever say that to your kid? Titus, I will love you unconditionally as long as you obey me. That doesn't even logically make sense. It's not unconditional anymore. I just put a condition on it. But the gospel says, I will love you unconditionally because I chose to. And there's nothing left required for you. The law says, if you want to be made right in my eyes, you want me to accept you, obey. We have to keep those separate. The gospel is the good news of God's grace towards sinners. The reason I point this out, to go back to John chapter 2, is because those believing Jesus convinced themselves they were all right. I, yes, whoever this good man is, I believe him. And they were off, not by a lot, but by enough. And John 2 through John 6 is just story after story explaining how far off we get. And Jesus is constantly saying, you can't do it. And finally, in John chapter 6, finally he goes, listen, you're, let me just be as clear as I possibly can be. You don't believe in me 
because the Father has not opened your eyes. So as a believer, as those of us who do understand the gospel, it's always hard for me when someone says, I don't feel saved. I don't feel like I've done enough. I don't feel like I'm dedicated. And the problem I have with that is that is gospel. That's gospel. You're you're mixing them together. If God is the one who saves you, and if God is the one who regenerates you, and if he's the one who takes you from death to life, I'm not quite sure what you're looking for. And I think it's healthy for anyone who's struggling to look at those who are around Jesus. If you are embracing Jesus because he's a miracle wonder worker, or if you're embracing Jesus because he's going to make your life better and he's going to make you happy, then yes, you don't understand the gospel. But if you're sitting in this seat tonight and you think to yourself, yeah, I, I definitely trust that Jesus is my only hope of righteousness and that I understand there's nothing else that I can do that part of the gospel most people get, but those who struggle with their assurance, it's typically after a failure or a life of failure or for whatever reason they don't see fruit, the fruit that they need in their life or they don't feel like they're living a holiness, a whole, uh, they, their holiness isn't at a certain level they need to be, whatever it is. You have to stop and ask yourself, does God put on me the requirement of righteousness or does God give me that? According to the apostles, he says, I chose you and I equipped you for fruit. But he didn't say what kind and how much. And we're going to get into that later in John, so I'm not going to answer that tonight. The reason why we as a church have to keep our eyes focused on these distinctions is because there is no hope the moment we mix them. And what are we drawing people into? And They weren't off by much, especially those who were following Jesus in John 2. They weren't off by much. And some can be very convincing. Matthew 24, 24. They were able to do signs and wonders. And so when it seems like the pastors and the elders here are a little sensitive and we turn up the volume, the reason we're turning up the volume is we have to be louder than the law speakers. Because otherwise we lose hope. I don't want us to lose hope. I want us to read John 3.16 as it was designed to be read. John 3.16 is a perfect example of gospel. It's a perfect example. Jesus was not saying, figure out a way to force yourself into this position. Make yourself smart enough to see my offer. Hey, you, I got a good offer for you. Figure it out. That's not John 3.16. John 3.16 is God's love took care of the problem so that you didn't have to. And by the way, in the narrative, that includes Gentiles, Nicodemus. That's why he quotes John 3.16. All right, I'm getting to my next one. 